Um, welcome to the Institute for Government. My name is Joe Owen. I am director of the Brexit programme here at the Institute for Government, and I'm delighted you're here for this session on citizens' rights after Brexit, kindly sponsored by Fragman, a leading immigration law firm. Um, so now the deal is done. The UK and the EU have reached an agreement. It's all been ratified, but I think as we are starting to hear more and more, that's not the process over with. You still need to implement the withdrawal agreement. So with Boris Johnson's oven-ready deal now sweating at 200 degrees, we thought we would take, uh, take some stock of where the citizens' rights elements are up to. So progress of the EU settlement scheme and protecting the rights of EU citizens in the UK, but also looking at the progress in settling the status of Brits in Europe uh, and looking at some of the challenges uh, over the next few months. So we have got a fantastic panel to do that. So on my far right, we have the Right Honourable Caroline Noakes, MP for Romsey and Southampton North and former Immigration Minister with, response, with the difficult job uh, of overseeing EU settlement scheme. To my immediate right, we have Julia Onslow-Cole, a partner at Fragerman. Uh, and someone who has advised the UK government on various immigration issues, uh, all the biggest ones. <laughs> um, Madeleine Sumption on my immediate left, director of the uh, Migration Observatory and member of the Migration Advisory Committee. To Madeleine's left, there is Caitlin Boswell-Jones, EEA National Project Coordinator at the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. And finally, on the far left, Nuria Gonzalez-Barros, councillor at the Spanish Embassy here in London. So before we get into the details, just some of the boring housekeeping. The event will run for probably about an hour and 15 minutes. There will be plenty of time for questions, so please do store them up. The event is <coughs> on the record. Uh, you can tweet along using hashtag IFGBrexit and following the at IFGEvents Twitter account. If there's anyone in the overflow room who wants to ask a question, please do stick your head through the door. We're not expecting a fire or a medical emergency, but if there is one, please do make your way out of the room and in the case of a fire, downstairs and out to the front of the building. So, that is enough from me. Um, Caroline, I wanted to start with you for the first question, um, as I'm sure you and people in the panel and the audience can anticipate we are probably going to spend a bit of time chewing over some of the challenges still to come with the EU settlement scheme, but interested in your reflections of actually what kind of job it's taken to get where we are now, where you know huge numbers are already going through and this was just a white paper a few years ago. Um, and that's such a massive subject, I don't really know where to start, and apologies if I become terribly anecdotal, but I can remember having been appointed Immigration Minister in January 2018, literally my first day in the office provoked perhaps the worst migraine of my life, uh, and it became a byword, oh, Caroline's got the Brexit team coming in, we best force feed her Neurofen before this even starts. Um, the thing that struck me from the outset, there was a phenomenal amount of work went in to getting the Settled Status Scheme up and running, uh, much testing and learning. There were some absolutely phenomenal working groups set up with employers, with local government, uh, with all the various interest groups to understand uh, not only the scale of the scheme, and I might later on reflect on whether the, the scale was properly appreciated at the outset, 
um, but to have something that functioned, something that was streamlined, something that was easy to use, and that was a real determination. I had come into the Home Office from a very brief uh, stint at the Cabinet Office, where I'd been the Minister responsible for the Government Digital Service, and it was really important to me that we had something that was going to be easy to use. Um, and there were massive challenges along the way. I mean, the, the introduction of being able to use the app on an iPhone only eventually happened after I'd left. Um, and everyone, every time I stood up in the chamber, people wanted to scream at me that it was somehow my fault that it only worked on Android phones without ever appreciating that this was Apple refusing uh, to release the technology that would enable the chip checker to interact with iOS. Um, but I think, uh, and I, you know, I'm not going to sit here and take credit for it all, but I think the team put in a phenomenal amount of success. They tested it with a very small cohort to begin with. Uh, and then widened it in the, the three stages of uh, testing so that when it came... And, you know, there were all sorts of weird and wonderful things popped up in the testing phases that you know, none of us had initially anticipated, that things like a hyphen in a Christian name or surname would send the whole thing haywire, um, and apologies for being flippant, but, you know, who knew that there were so many French women called sort of Marie-Louise? Um, and therefore, you know, that hyphen absolutely became a, a real sticking point for a short while. Um, but I think... The scheme, certainly it was the biggest part of my job for that first year as Immigration Minister. We launched it uh, to the public at March 2019, and you know, really within a very few months of that, I was gone. Um, and I think that was one of my huge sadnesses. The day I was sacked was the day that the millionth person went through the scheme. Now, that was way ahead of where I had anticipated we would be in the process, um, and to hear that we're now at 3.2 million applications have been made. Well, the initial estimates were that there were about three to three and a half million EU citizens in the UK as a whole. So I begin to look at that and go, hmm, maybe we had underestimated that. Um, and we had always anticipated there would sort of be a, a massive surge at the beginning, then it would taper off through the course of this year, um, and then a surge at the end. I think that the Home Office could look at it and feel in a reasonably comfortable position that they had had this volume of applicants already, but the thing that struck me looking at the numbers is 3.2 million applications, 2.7 million uh, granted either settled or pre-settled status at the current time. That means that there are half a million in the system. That's huge. But then we know that January, inevitably, with uh, the 31st approaching fast, saw a massive surge in applications. So, you know, there were challenges, there was a lot of investment, a lot of time, and a lot of people. Um, and I never talk about my time at the Home Office without commending the people. And 1,500 people working on the Settled Status Scheme altogether, 250 of which were in the Settlement Resolution Centre in Liverpool. I went to see them personally. I sat and answered phones along with uh, some of the staff there for the, the, the difficult cases. Um, and it really struck me there was uh, a massive commitment from the Home Office to get it right, get it done, get it functioning. Because that was set up, wasn't it, the, the new um, centre in Liverpool to have a different culture to the usual home office centres and they deliberately didn't transfer people but hired people who were new. So a lot of thinking went into getting it right, basically. A lot of thinking went into getting it right. Um, there, there's one poor lady, and I cite her endlessly, Gabby, um, who absolutely embodied the culture of what I wanted to see from... Um, the people working on the phone lines. It, it was a real attitude. So, and it always had been with the Settled Status Scheme. It was not about passing or failing. It was about helping people to provide the necessary information so that they would get granted their status. Um, and for a while, there were some 
kind of awkward tensions around was pre-settled status a fail? No, it wasn't. It just meant that we didn't have adequate information to be able to evidence someone had been here for five years. Not a fail by any stretch of the imagination. I think what I have identified as a tension going forward, and I used to say it the whole time, is that you could have somebody who had applied you know, last year now, not last year, the year before last now, uh, and granted pre-settled status because they'd been here for four years. Well, they've now been here five years, and I'm not yet convinced that we have uh, an adequate system to... Uh, move them on to settle status. So, you know, it's a reapplication. Go through the, the same steps again now. Do you know, you don't have to pay anything for it, so that's relatively simple, but actually wouldn't it be lovely if on the app you could change your status, uh, enhance your status to, to settled yeah. in a much more streamlined way? Yeah. Well, some of that I'm sure we will get into uh, later on. So, Julia, I want to come to you next and just your reflections as someone who was close to the system as it was being designed and developed, but now also sees how it's working in practice, what your reflections are and where we're at. Well, I was working very closely with Caroline and the team throughout this and the implementation phase, and I think that there's, as Caroline's just said, there's so many incredible positives about the system. I think at the beginning, lots of people said that the technology would break down. The technology has never broken down. Um, and there's been a, a lot of people who have said, well, you know, it, it, it will be done with a, with a sort of a mindset to fail. And actually, if you actually look at the statistics, I think only six applications out of all the ones that have been granted have been refused um, on suitability grounds. And also, the practice is that the Home Office will just keep on receiving documents, answering queries until the very end um, so that people can get their applications through. Um, very early on, I persuaded um, a, a, a hairdresser's, or actually Carolyn and I live very close to each other, but they're the sort of hairdressers that nearly everybody goes to, and I persuaded them to shut early on a Saturday, and I got the app and I actually registered all of the girls that were working in, in that hairdresser's, and it was so easy, and I actually, they all got, uh, applications approved at that time within about 24 hours and I think it's about two to, to four weeks now um, but you know from a practical point of view I think it's been um, an amazing success the tech working the fact that you don't have to in majority of cases give in your passport the fact it's free um, now you know you can use it on any device and I think that the communications have also been very very successful and you know, that, that's resulted in the numbers. I think the next stage is where there are more vulnerable people and that, you know, it's harder to reach them by uniform communications because people are vulnerable for all different sorts of reasons. So, for example, um, I had somebody that just telephoned me who was um, 91 who just found my name um, on the, online and said she wanted to make an application and I said, I would send someone around and I'll come and do it in her house because she was obviously like really worried about it and confused and and then I said that I would bring the, a tablet with me and she then kept saying oh but it might interfere with all my others and I said oh you're obviously very tech savvy if you've got other computers and then I realized she meant her heart tablets so um, you know there are people like her but then there are people we've been doing Fragman have been partnering with the uh, mayor of London and uh, we have been doing sessions registering 
um, people, and there are a lot of people, for example, in abused relationships who can't get hold of their uh, documents, so they're in a completely different category, and therefore it's very difficult to reach out to these different sectors. So I think that's an, another challenge. So good early progress, but some, some concerns, particularly around vulnerable groups. Madeline, you've done a lot of work understanding what the data tells us about actual performance and what you can say about any of the patterns that exist um, from looking at the data. Do you want to give us a kind of a flavour of some of the things that are standing out? Yes. So in terms of the performance, it's actually, we're in an odd situation in that on the one hand, we have a lot of data about the scheme, much more than we tend to get about other areas of um, home office immigration business. And that's obviously really good. It comes up um, very quickly. It's much more detailed, has more demographics, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, it's, um, it's actually really hard to interpret the data and understand what it means in terms of performance. So if you think about, okay, what do we care about performance-wise? Well, um, we care about essentially how inclusive is the scheme, so you know, is, is everyone taking it up? Are they getting the right status, pre-settled status versus settled status? And then you know, if, you know, what's the customer experience along, along the journey? Now, um, we have you know, some data on the customer experience, although there's you know, relatively limited information on things like waiting times, which obviously people really care about, particularly the kind of long tail of wait, that some of the applications that do seem to be taking a very long time. Um, <clears throat> but we actually, I mean, compared to other areas, again, compared to other areas of immigration policy, much more information from the early testing reports in particular than you would get anywhere else in the, in the immigration system. Um, on the issue of take-up, I think in some ways we basically just know nothing. Um, we have all of the data on how many people have, have applied, but the basic issue is we have no idea how many people are eligible. And um, this is... Um, this is a real problem. I, I'm not, I become increasingly pessimistic about the ability, at least based on the kind of data that we currently have, to work out what share of people have gone through. On the one hand, you've got some, some issues on the data on the Home Office side, um, most notably the fact that um, it's not yet been possible for them to work out how many people have um, been granted status more than once, so basically you've had pre-settled status and then upgraded to settled status. Uh, which was something I think that was quite surprising to many of us working in the field that the systems weren't set up to do that, but apparently they're not. Um, th probably the bigger issue is that we have there's no we have an estimate from the Office of National Statistics of how many EU citizens are, are living in the UK. Um, that doesn't include obviously the people who are not living in the UK but are eligible for one reason, either based on a, period, a previous period of um, of residence or maybe someone who's applied for pre-settled status who um, was was here and is now. Um, gone back to their country of origin, might come back in the future. Um, so there, it's actually really not possible at the moment to make a comparison between the kind of you know, three and a half or so million um, EU citizens estimated to be in the UK and the number of people who've, who've applied to the scheme. There are actually, I mean, I think that if the government really wanted to know this, there are some things they can do using administrative data. It's a much more complex process, trying to kind of basically link the different uh, sources of, of information. So I think that's... Um, that's going to be a big challenge, and it has some important policy implications in terms of what do you do about that uncertainty. If, if we accept that, actually, maybe we will just never know how many people um, haven't yet applied, then that has policy implications um, on its own. And then the final thing on um, pre-settled versus um, settled status. Here again, I mean, the share of people, when you look at what we know from, say, Office of National Statistics data on the EU population, 
um, the share of people getting pre-settled status at first glance looks a little high, um, particularly in recent months. But um, we know that the people who've applied are not necessarily representative of um, the whole EU population here. Mm. And so it's possible, it, it could be the case that people who arrived more recently have been more keen to, um, to put in an application because they're more uh, aware of the fact that things are changing and, um, and want to get their status nailed down. You could also say, well, it could be the other way around. It could be people who've been here for longer and eligible for settled status um, would do it faster, and then the people who've been here for, say, three or four years might wait a little bit longer, given that they don't need to apply yet. Mm. So I think at this stage, while we still have, you know, it still looks like there are probably a fair number of people yet to apply, it's, it's quite difficult to assess, it based on the data alone, um, whether people are getting the, the right status. Anecdotally, of course, there are a lot mm -hmm. of um, stories about people not being given the right status, but in terms of a statistical picture of that, it's really hard. Yeah, so they're moving from the kind of data then into the, the practicalities. Caitlin, I wanted to bring you in about uh, at JCWI what some of the big um, concerns that you're hearing kind of firsthand are the big challenges with how it's being rolled out or some of the big challenges still to come. Uh, yeah, I think in terms of um, challenges that we're seeing as we go, at JCWI our work focuses on the people that the scheme isn't reaching and the people that we're worried about slipping through the cracks and falling out of status on the 31st of June next year. Um, and I think people have mentioned vulnerable groups. I think everyone's quite aware of who those groups are by now. Um, and we've spoken to lots of people who um, are talking about concern about people like adults with limited mental capacity. I've spoken myself to um, care providers, care managers, union workers, and there's a lot of confusion and um, concern about adults with limited capacity who might not necessarily understand the scheme, be able to consent, and a lack of guidance from the government coming out on who has responsibility for these people, um, along with, kind of, as, as was already mentioned, survivors of domestic violence who might actually be ineligible due to their relationship breaking down because of that abuse, things like that. Um, but I think it's important to say it's not just traditionally vulnerable groups that we're worried about, it's also people who might be unaware that this scheme applies to them. So, I've spoken myself to lots of people who say, oh, I'm fine, I've been in the UK for over 20 years, it doesn't apply to me. And there's a lot of misunderstanding. And it's not surprising if you have a card that says permanent residence, why you might think, I don't need to apply to this scheme. Um, we're also uh, worried about certain groups of workers who, again, might not, you might not see as vulnerable and aren't vulnerable in a traditional sense, but workers in sectors where there's really high numbers of Europeans um, alongside higher levels of work exploitation, uh, lower levels of unionisation and spoken English such as care or construction. Um, I actually met up um, a couple of weeks ago with a care worker who was a dual national Ethiopian and um, Swedish. I went into the care home, she had no idea what the scheme was, um, she didn't know it applied to her. Um, she didn't have a smartphone, she wouldn't feel comfortable doing it herself, her English was very limited. Her, the manager of the care home, when I spoke to him, knew nothing about the scheme before I'd come there and hadn't received anything from the government about the scheme. Um, so there are a lot of people that we're really worried about failing to apply and, as I say, falling out of status um, next year. I think some of the other concerns that are really pressing are the £9 million of funding that the government gave to 57 frontline organisations working with vulnerable groups of EU nationals runs out next month um, and there's so far been nothing about whether that's going to be extended or renewed and I've spoken to service providers that have had to close 
their service despite really long waiting lists of extremely vulnerable, um, vulnerable clients who just have no other way of getting that support. There's no legal aid for the EU settlement scheme and these people really rely on these services. So that's a massive area for concern. Um, I think the third thing is the lack of government outreach to reach people who are really socially isolated, who aren't going to see the teacup ads on the tube or get the Facebook advertising, people in care homes, adults who are housebound, um, and there needs to be kind of increased effort to reach those groups and make the scheme really accessible. I think one of the things that can be done is, um, I know that the government's digital assist programme has had really low take-up, but there are so many people, as we see from the stats, that there's a massive underrepresentation of over 65s applying, um, and that is something that needs improvement. And also the helpline is only available in English and Welsh, which, when it's for a European settlement scheme, seems very um, hard to understand but from my perspective. Um, so there's a, few, there's a few different things that we're really concerned about. Um, and from our opinion, although you can kind of improve outreach, renew the funding, the only thing that's going to really solve everything is, is granting automatic settled status to all EU nationals and their family members um, in the UK, a declaratory scheme, which is what we're campaigning for alongside the three million and others. Um, this isn't a radical ask. This was promised by Boris Johnson and Priti Patel in the 2016 Leave campaign. So we're just asking politicians to keep their promises and we think this is the only way to stop mass criminalisation of, of Europeans in the UK. So I'm really keen to come back to the, the idea of the declaratory scheme. Um, yeah. But before we do, Nuria, do you want to give us your reflection on what you're hearing at the embassy and the outreach, the people who are coming to you? Have you got lots of good news stories? Are there much more kind of concern about how the process is going? What are you hearing firsthand from, from Spanish citizens here? Well, to give you a little background, we have a service at the embassy and we provide information through email or through the phone. And we also assist Spanish citizens with the whole process. So I've been doing the EU settlement scheme myself for, I mean, 100 times. And we have uh, many, many inputs from the, uh, our citizens. Most of them that were living here for a long period of time were complaining, that especially at the beginning they felt that this is, I've been living here for 40 years, uh, this country is thriving because I worked for, uh, for them and now I have to go through this uh, process. But I have to say that as time goes on and the, uh, the EU settlement scheme becomes more simple, people are quite happy with the, uh, and we are happy with the figures, we have to say that. But still we have some complaints, especially the lack of physical document. Sometimes the uh, process, which have been mentioned, the uh, process is um, really not that easy if you don't have technical skills. Uh, we have our own concerns. Um, it's mentioned that people over 65, uh, the numbers are not that great, but what about under 18? Um, I have the impression that people think that only grown-ups have to do the EU settlement scheme, so we are really uh, trying to communicate that uh, kids still have to go through the, through the whole process. And I, I think that uh, that's basically it. We also have plenty of questions, not really dealing with the EU settlement scheme, but something like, um, uh, I'm moving to the UK, what is going to, this kind of questions we get it from, from people calling from Spain. What do I have to do? Many questions about the um, travel documents, uh, many questions about driving license for some, some reason, and what is going to happen with healthcare and so on. And recently, few, quite a few questions about the new immigration system. Mm. People don't seem to be quite easy about the, the, the new system. Again, another thing that it would be good for us to get into. So on the, Caroline, I wanted to come back to you because a lot of 
the big things that have come up around the declaratory scheme, yep. um, the physical documentation and outreach, all of this will have come up time and time again in the kind of um, the user groups that you did in the home office and the outreach you did. What was the reasoning behind saying that no, declaratory scheme doesn't work and no, we're not going to do physical documentation. Actually, we think we've, we've got this right. So I'm going to kick off with a, a massive rider here, which is everybody else on this panel has been living and breathing the EUSS uh, over the last few months. I've had a lovely break since July. Um, <laughs> so I am going to be the rustiest on the panel, uh, added to which I was begging the Home Office to provide me with some of my old briefings because uh, you know I might have answered one or two urgent questions and stood in uh, front of select committees on 12 separate occasions talking about this. Uh, and it would be nice to think that my memory was perfect on all of these issues. It's not. However, um, kicking off with the, the no physical document, and I uh, was repeatedly very robust on this subject, with the transition of government services to digital only. I mentioned earlier I'd been the minister for GDS. Uh, I absolutely thought this was the right way forward uh, to have a digital status. The um, the, and, you know, this is going to make everybody in the room start hissing at me, but I am a former immigration minister, so, you know, let's talk about the right to work checks and the right to rent checks, which are all done online and work fantastically smoothly and easily, uh, and compare that to the challenges that we sometimes have had around physical documents, which get lost, which need to be renewed, which are easier to forge. So uh, there were concerns that we should have a system that didn't require people to keep hold of a document that they then might have to produce on demand, but a digital status that they would be able to, to flick up at the, very quickly on their smartphone, etc. Um, do you know, I recognise that people weren't altogether happy with that, but it was certainly uh, the direction of travel that we felt in the rollout, rollout of digital services across government was the right one. When it comes to vulnerable groups, I think this is a really important uh, aspect and I had the, the privilege to go and meet a number of the recipients of the grant funding and hear how they were using that to uh, work with their local communities and reach out to people who might otherwise uh, not be aware of the scheme and I think that's a really important point and I can't remember who it was that raised it was the level of awareness so we spent 3.75 million pounds on advertising at the start of the scheme I was always very conscious that there would have to be more in due course and actually Madeline's right you need to dig down into the data you need to understand where the applications are coming from which uh, nationalities are particularly good at applying and which ones are less so and I can remember visiting the Romanian embassy really very early on in the scheme because what struck us instantly was that Romanian citizens were applying at a much faster rate than everybody else and we know don't we that there's roughly 1.1 million Polish citizens and there were sort of 400, 450,000 Romanians and we couldn't understand why this massive proportion uh, were coming from Romanians and trying to understand well how you know is your outreach to the Romanian diaspora in this country better than everybody else's and if so please can you a, tell us how you're doing it so we can disseminate that to the other embassies so they can uh, replicate it but I do think when it comes to both advertising and outreach with the vulnerable groups there's there is clearly a great deal more work to do um, and that falls onto the shoulders of my successors uh, of which there have already been more than one um, so I think that's important I think uh, the nine million pound grant funding uh, in addition to saying you know you have to spend more money on advertising yeah you have to make sure that the grant funding is hitting the right people. I can remember going to, um, and you know, people might wince at this because it was real close to home, uh, but going to the systems advice in Bournemouth 
um, and talking to them, because of course Bournemouth is a huge tourist area, so it has a lot of EU citizens working in the hotels and hearing about the work, the citizens' advice they were doing to, to reach out uh, to hotel workers. But I went to a, a fruit farm in Scotland where one of the frontline strawberry packers absolutely knew all about the scheme, had been through the scheme, was very happy with the scheme. Her supervisor knew nothing. And that sort of seems counterintuitive. You would expect it to be the other way around, but it wasn't. Um, and I think certainly that, that funding needs to be uh, refreshed if required. Um, and you know, it is by digging around in the data that you will find the anomalies. The over 65 point, I think, has to be of concern. Mm. Um, and I can remember going to the Eastern European Resource Centre in Hammersmith uh, and being put in a, a room of really very elderly people for whom you know, a mobile phone was not their prized possession, let alone a smartphone, um, and being struck there, like, well, there is a massive piece. Now, they were doing the work, and they had received grant funding and were having drop-ins and were helping people through the process, much as uh, Julia was helping hairdressers through the process. She did fabulous work there. But, you know, employers, I think, are some of the best people to reach out via local government. I always say this. When, when you have a crisis in your life, whether it is flooding or your bin hasn't been collected, people turn to their local councils because they are the organisation with whom they feel most familiar and most connected, and particularly for EU citizens actually they tend to, in their home countries, have a much stronger relationship with, uh, apologies for my French, but the local mairie or the local town hall. It is um, absolutely where civic life revolves around. Um, and you know, we had the LGA in a great deal. We worked with them about finding ways to communicate with young people because, of course, the under-18s uh, and being able to have age-appropriate materials that they understand. Um, and I felt, you know, I instinctively felt quite uncomfortable about oh, we're now pushing this at children, are we? But actually, we have to. Um, and so it's right that you do it in the correct way. And there was another point, oh, declaratory scheme. Yeah. Uh, so I have defended this uh, in the House many, many times. Um, and this, this will make everybody wince, and I hate having to, to go there. But one of the real challenges of the 1971 Immigration Act was that was effectively declaratory. It gave everybody of the Windrush generation deemed leave to be in this country uh, if they were here before the 1st of Jan 1973. And the big failing of that act was that it didn't give anybody anything uh, which said that they had the right to be here. You know, digital status didn't exist in those days, but it didn't give them documentation. And unfortunately, the Home Office institutional memory to remember that people who had been here since pre-Jan 73 had absolutely the right to stay uh, was lost. So I became absolutely adamant that this had to be a scheme that would be robust going forward. Um, and we have to remember that there will be a, an EU child that has been born in the last couple of years that may well live to 120. Um, and so this has to be something that is really enduring because that child will have rights that they will need to be able to evidence going forward. And on the, the declaratory scheme is a, a really interesting one because there's one interpretation of you just pass a piece of legislation that says any EU citizens here, you now have status, job done. The other interpretation is saying that actually the thing to do would be not to have this legal guillotine at the end of June 2020, uh, 2021 rather, and say actually um, for all of those people that we've discussed, the vulnerable groups, if you've not applied by this point, there's a way back. You can still apply for settled status to get your documentation to prove your rights beyond that date. Do you think that's 
an obvious place where ministers will want to end up when they get to the deadline and say, actually, do we want all of the people who, for various reasons, have not applied to suddenly be illegal immigrants under the law tomorrow, or do we want to give them a way back? Do you think that's a possible landing zone? Or? So and I think I would be perfectly correct in saying that I'm on record of saying, look, we have to have uh, uh, an understanding approach to this. We have to be prepared to be uh, flexible. We had already said, you know, people who could come up with a good reason, whether it be through ill health, um, should be able to apply after that date. Look, I'm not in government anymore. Yeah. Um, I spent 18 months of my life trying to humanise the Home Office. Um, <laughs> and I think it's absolutely critical that there should be tolerance and understanding. And no, the last thing that we want to do is to create a massive swathe of people song status on the 1st of July next year. That's utterly, utterly unacceptable. And that would be another Windrush. So, you know, I have no qualms whatsoever about saying there needs to be tolerance and understanding on this uh, and the government needs to show flexibility. Madeline, just quickly with you on the declaratory scheme, is that your understanding of how this could sensibly work or are there other ways that we could get around the challenge of wanting to avoid kind of uh, comparisons to Windrush in either direction, either with a guillotine on the legislation or by just passing a piece of legislation with no physical proof? Yeah, I think <clears throat> this is an interesting one and it's, um, it's definitely a bit of a dilemma. And from a policy perspective, obviously on the one hand, deadlines are quite useful at motivating people and there's a lot of research and something I sympathize with fair amount myself that you know things get done if there's a deadline to do it. Um, obviously, if the <clears throat> consequences of missing a deadline are completely draconian, that's not going to be acceptable either. Um, and I actually find it difficult to imagine that the government will have the nerve to go through with um, the current plan where people would actually become um, irregular migrants overnight. I think um, one thing where um, the real challenge is, I, mean, I think this issue of having a good reason for not applying is quite problematic because a lot of people just won't have a good reason. If you look elsewhere in the immigration system, a good reason is often, you know, I was kind of unconscious in hospital or something like that. And it's not necessarily, sorry, I forgot. And actually under the current immigration system, the sorry, I forgot people do not get treated with much understanding at all. So um, I think there has to be, from a policy perspective, there has to be an understanding that, there, that people don't always do what's in their interest. And if you look at other, you know, no government program that's basically kind of voluntary that people have to come forward to, has 100% compliance, you know, take up rate, even when it's manifesting in someone's interest to do it. So mm. you look at, you know, people who get fined for not submitting their self-assessment um, for taxes on the right day. You know, people are disorganised; their lives are chaotic, um, and so, um, so I think that probably um, that it will. It's quite difficult to imagine, in some ways, any um, any scenario other than one where people continue to be let through after the deadline. From a communications perspective, there's a little bit of a challenge here in that you could imagine an optimal strategy where the government kind of pretends there's a deadline but actually has no intention of there being one, um, which um, isn't very transparent and could in itself lead to problems because then if they've made a big deal about there being a deadline, people will be more fearful about coming forward after the deadline. So I, I do think it's, it's genuine a challenge, but I'm, um, I would be surprised if there wasn't um, political pressure to lead to something that pretty much looks like a declaratory scheme in the way that you're discussing it in some way or another, even if it's not necessarily exactly the one that, um, you know, it doesn't function mm. legally the same way as, say, the Windrush um, generation did. Just relying on a compassionate home office to get there. Um, Julia. Um, I've just got a couple of points to add. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's, I think absolutely there will be something and I think the fact that it's silent as to what's going to happen is an indication that that's where the wiggle room will be. 
Also, I think that the whole scheme, as I said at the outset, has shown that the Home Office has a completely different mindset in these applications. And therefore, they just have to continue to apply the same mindset, which is really just supporting everyone through to a positive process. So I think that that is achievable. And I also just would like to say a couple of points about the benefits of having the digital system rather than a physical card. And one of the major benefits is the um, security of personal data, because in the past you had a card, and that card you'd have to give to uh, everybody. So if it was a right, if you were trying to prove your right to rent or your proving your right to work, they would have all of your information. And the really fantastic benefit of the uh, digital system is that you control everything and you can just give a potential employer just that little bit of information that they need to know about you to be able to confirm that you are eligible to work. Same for the landlord. And that actually is a much better position for an individual. And I know it's difficult because you, everyone likes having something they can physically hold, but there is a huge advantage to uh, having, having a digital system, which I think sometimes in the debates people forget. Great, that's very helpful. Caitlin, do you want to come back on that and some of the, the other longer term challenges that you at JCWI see in the, in yeah. the system? Yeah, um, just to come back on that point, um, I, would, I would have to disagree. I think um, our kind of point of view at JCWI with the digital system is that the creation of one big digital system, which the EU settlement scheme is a pilot for, and we know now will be rolled out for the whole immigration system, is that it creates one big system that ramps up the hostile environment, makes it much easier for people to share information and takes the control out of people's hands for their personal data. Um, we're not opposed to digital systems in and of themselves, but not when the Home Office is responsible for data sharing in order to enforce hostile immigration policies. That's when it's an issue. Um, I think on, on the issue of physical documentation, the reason it's so important is obviously partly because people like to have physical documentation, as we know from the Three Millions recent survey of over 3,000 people, 90% of people said that they feel really unhappy about the fact that they don't have it and it helps them feel more in control, less anxious. But a bigger point is that we know that a lack of physical documentation leads to discrimination. Um, JCWI's recent research into the right to rent scheme, of, which is a part of the hostile environment, which makes landlords do immigration checks we found that landlords are much less likely and more reluctant to rent accommodation to people without physical, physical documentation, regardless of their status, whether they have a right to be here or not. Um, and that, the, the, this part of the scheme was found to be discriminatory and cause racial discrimination by the courts as well, so we're back in court at the moment. Um, so it's a bigger thing than just people liking it. I think it's a, it's a real cause for concern and the potential for discrimination. I've spoken to people on the ground who have said that they're already facing discrimination from landlords saying that they won't rent to them for not having settled status, employers not wanting to employ people, which we know is unlawful until January next year anyway. Um, to come back onto the point about um, this idea of Windrush, which we know is being bandished around on all sides, I think we have to be really cautious using Windrush as a campaigning tool. Um, the situation of the Windrush generation is unique and unresolved, largely ongoing and affects a predominantly um, BME group of people who have their legal rights, a lot of whom were British citizens. Um, but in the case of the EU settlement scheme with people who fail to apply, 
um, they won't have those legal rights to fall back on. They won't have that legal protection, unlike the Windrush generation. Um, they will be here unlawfully, and they will the only... That's why we think that the only kind of solution to that is automatic settled status. On the one hand, you have people who can evidence their rights because of a lack of physical documentation. In this case, it's a people without rights completely. So I think people are right to fear that after the cutoff point, there's likely to be a much larger group of people out of status with similarly devastating real-life consequences as the Windrush generation. So before we get to questions from the floor, I want to spend just a few minutes talking about how we're getting on with Brits in the EU. And, yeah. <laughs> and you know, we've talked a lot about the challenges here, but how are you guys getting on in Spain and do actually a lot of the similar challenges exist in that scheme? Well, not really, because uh, in the withdrawal agreement, we are following Article, I think, is 18.4. So our system is going to be declaratory. You don't need to do anything. Basically, if you live in Spain throughout, I mean, before the, uh, the end of the transitional period, you keep all your rights. But of course, you need the, the proof to, to, uh, I mean, to make a difference between the people that live in Spain right now and the, the people coming in 2021. So, and I think we have the green light uh, from Brussels. What we are going to do quite soon is to issue a physical document with biometrical uh, data so people could on a voluntary basis, maybe they have to pay a fee, they could apply for this document and it's a system to prove that they have the right to stay in Spain, to rent a house, to cross the border, so on and so forth. And the good thing is that the document is going to be similar to all the 27 countries in the EU. So I think it's, it's, it's a lot of work, but we don't have a deadline because, uh, I mean, uh, if you, uh, at the end of the transitional period, if you uh, don't do that, uh, it's okay. You can do it in 2021, 2022. So it's pretty simple. It's, I think it's going to be quite effective and, and it's, it's easy. We are familiar with the uh, ID system and, and it has never been a problem in, in Spain. Thank you very much. So very lastly, before we go to questions, I wanted to come back to you, Caroline, on the question of Brits in Europe and whether you think the UK ministers are doing enough to keep the pressure on the EU27 on implementing their side. So we've heard an example where Spain have got it together. There are fewer of the challenges, but uh, my understanding is that there are still four member states who haven't said whether they're going to do a declaratory or an application scheme. Only three member states are actually currently accepting applications from Brits in the EU. So do you think, in the same way that I'm sure you um, enjoyed having Eva Hofstadt coming over regularly Never met. and putting the pressure on um, the UK side, do you think we need to start putting the pressure on to ensure the rights of Brits in the EU get their, their status settled by the end of the transition? Has this so fallen through the gap? A bit spiky with you. I don't think we need to start because actually ministers had already been doing that and you know we've got a whole different cast from the, the ones that I used to... Uh, communicate, deal with in the Foreign Office and in the Department for Exiting the EU, but I know that when Steve Barclay was the Brexit Secretary, I used to badger him about this endlessly, uh, as indeed his predecessors, to make sure that there was work going on with our uh, friends and neighbours in the EU27. When I was Immigration Minister, every time I went to an embassy, and I went to a lot, although I don't think I ever went to the Spanish one, apologies, um, I used to talk to ambassadors about, you know, what are you doing to pressure your government to make sure that Brits in the rest of the EU 
are uh, being supported in the same way that we've introduced this system here. What are you doing there now? You know, that, that's a long time ago now, mm. to be brutally honest, and things have moved on. But I just want to pick up a point, and apologies for being hideously anecdotal, but I'm just a humble backbench member of Parliament, and I have been struck over the last, well, particularly back in September when there were my constituents, and perhaps more particularly my constituents' children, disappearing off to different EU countries to go to university, the number of times I was contacted by a desperate mother who was saying, you know, my child is in whichever EU city and they need to get a residency card to from the local municipality and they've been told that they cannot have it because the UK's left the EU, at which point I would be screaming down the phone, we've not left. Um, but, you know, that's the reality. There have already been challenges for Britsits uh, abroad and I think we don't need to start to be doing this, we need to be redoubling efforts to make sure that it is okay because we know it's about 1.1 million uh, British citizens who are currently resident in EU countries and what we also know about them is that a, a hefty proportion of them are pensioners who've disappeared off to find sunnier climates. I cannot pretend that I blame them at all um, but of course we know don't we that with an aging population they start uh, rubbing up against the challenges of healthcare um, and certainly I think this is uh, for me uh, and I used to tell people this endlessly because every time I appeared in front of a select committee I would be asked, what are you doing to help the Brits abroad? And I go, no, you misunderstand the role of the immigration minister. Um, you know, this was very much, very much the bag of other people, not me. But, I, you know, it, of course it's an area of concern. And when you as a, a member of parliament are already getting those questions, you know, prior to us having left, mm. it has to be a worry. Okay, so open up to questions from the floor. We have some quick hands going up. Should we take these... Three. Do you want to take one and pass it on and we'll do three at a time? Hi, thank you very much. I'm Cristina Ayardo from Politico. I'd like to go back to the issue of physical versus digital. Um, one complaint that I've heard from many Europeans who have gone through the system is that they think the real reason why the Home Office doesn't want to give physical evidence of status is because it's expensive versus doing it digital. I wonder whether you could respond to that criticism. Thank you. Yes, do you want to take three? Uh, Joe Edgerton, I largely work in financial service consulting. And uh, two very quick points. First of all, on using electronic versus paper systems, most of the time we use electronic to check ID, etc., etc. Every so often it goes wrong. If we can get paper, we can then sort it out. Without paper, there were even people who'd have lost their jobs and had other problems. I think it is essential that there's some sort of paper backup, even if it is not final, to check it. Second thing, the Financial Conduct Authority regularly has to deal with people who have on firms who have not applied in time, and there's been a cutoff, and including cases where people could be sent to prison for up to six months for not having done things. They have a system thing called the Regulatory Decisions Committee which is made of a couple of senior lawyers and practitioners who have lots of outside experience. Nobody gets penalised until those people have signed it off. And time and time again, they, the, the, the RDC has thrown paperwork back at people and said, uh, the enforcement of people and said, don't be so stupid, okay. this person has obviously just made a mistake. May I suggest that going forward, we should all be pushing for something similar to that so that Home Office officials can't sign deportation and other orders without that sort of internal review because I suspect the RDC has saved a lot of grief, I know, and I think the same thing could usefully be done here. Brilliant, thank you very much. And then just in front. Thank you. Um, 
I'm, uh, I'm just, uh, sorry, I'm Ilsa from Three Million. Um, so we hear a lot about uh, people applying for settled status and uh, get, whether they have gained settled status or not. Um, there's been a lot of, of focus on that. Uh, naturally in, in this panel, but I'm just wondering if enough is known at this point about um, how settled status interacts with accessing other government services. Um, for instance, uh, I saw a tweet from Tribe Poverty Action Group the other day uh, saying that people with pre-settled status from the 1st of April are no longer going to be able to um, to get a council tax rebate. So there are all kinds of um, knock-on effects uh, in, in terms of accessing both public and private services that uh, I feel we're not hearing enough about. Uh, and I wonder if... Um, uh, uh, if, if any work is being done to, uh, to look into that and to ensure that people can continue their lives as normal. Thank you. Caroline, do you want to start? Okay. Um, so, you know, I think, I think we've rehearsed reasonably well the whole argument about physical versus digital status. Um, thanks to Julia for having pointed out that you only had to share the bits of information that you needed to share, which I'd completely forgotten. Um, so is it about the cost of it? No, I mean it was about the move towards government digital services. I, you know, I came in at a time when we were going to charge for settled status as we were perfectly entitled to do under the withdrawal agreement as indeed some EU countries are charging uh, Britsits. It was then uh, made uh, free um, which I think was absolutely the right thing to do um, but I, you know, I stand by my comments. I don't think there needs to be a physical document for all the reasons I outlined earlier. I think the point about not having applied in time, I love this bit when as a former immigration minister I get to give a long lecture about the difference uh, um, deportation and removal. So deportation only happens to people who've been convicted of a criminal offence. There is a very distinct difference between deportation and removal. Um, so there is absolutely no question of EU citizens being deported unless they have committed a criminal offence. Um, I think it's really important that there has to be a monitoring authority, there has to be a system of appeal. Apologies for not knowing where the Home Office has got to in setting that up yet, but you know, trying to get briefing out of them for this was challenging enough. Um, and uh, with regard to the, the point from the three million, you know, I think it, absolutely the whole point of settled status was enabling people to continue their lives as they do now. Uh, sometimes the, the word broadly as they do now crept into that, but I'm sorry. I can't answer the question as to what work the Home Office is doing uh, with regard to that going forward. That is something for my successor, but certainly it was always absolutely uh, the most important thing as far as I was concerned. And I don't think I ever stood at the dispatch box and didn't say that we want EU citizens to be able to remain here, to live their lives happily here, for them to understand not only that they can stay, we want them to stay. And you know, I think we heard earlier comments about the social care system. I vividly remember uh, the then chief exec of my local NHS trust with her head in her hands saying, what the hell am I going to do if all the Spanish and Portuguese nurses who are working in this hospital leave? Uh, and I think she made the point they had 350 nurses from Spain and Portugal alone. We know that the care industry is incredibly reliant, particularly on Romanian nationals. So we have to, as a government, keep uh, redoubling our efforts to convey the message, we want EU citizens to stay, we need them to stay, 
uh, the fabric of our communities is dependent upon them staying. Um, and it's, I think, a source of bitter regret and sadness to me that that message sometimes gets lost. Um, and, you know, certainly as immigration minister, I never didn't, um, probably too many negatives gone. I always said that, repeatedly said that, because to me it was crucially and remains crucially important. Okay, next round of questions. We've got one here, one here, and then Hayden, do you want to pass it just Hi, Sweelang Harris from the Legal Education Foundation. Um, thanks very much to the panel, but I really just have a question for Caroline, the former minister. Um, this, I appreciate that you've now been out of post as immigration minister for some time and, and that briefings from the Home Office may not have been um, fulsome in advance of this event. But I wanted to raise some questions that were asked of you when you were minister in the context of parliamentary uh, questions and, and evidence to, um, I think it was Lord Anderson, Lord David Anderson, that particularly asked you questions on this. Um, the automatic checks that verify length of residence in the settled status scheme don't include child benefit, child tax credit or working tax credit. And um, the question has often been asked since this was identified as to why it was decided to exclude these benefits. And you've spoken, and, and we've heard a lot about the, the benefits of the digital system and how fantastically streamlined it is and how it enables many people to get through the system quite swiftly and easily. So I wondered whether um, you were able to shed any light as to why those particular sources of data that the DWP holds were not some that are um, checked routinely in order to verify residence. Go for one at the back and then... Um, uh, David Goodhart from Policy Exchange. Um, a, a couple of questions. First of all, do, do people on the panel expect there to be a significant surge of people coming here before the cut-off date, whenever that is? Is, is it the end of this year or sometime next year? Uh, given that the rights you acquire are substantially greater if you do get in before the cut-off point. Um, and second question, the implication of most of what was being said on the panel was we will in effect have a form of amnesty for people who are technically EU illegal immigrants um, um, after the registration period has ended. Um, I mean, if we do in effect have an amnesty, does the government then kind of expose itself to legal claims from other kinds of people who are, you know, possibly 1.2 million according to the, the estimates that are made? Uh, other kinds of illegal immigrants, um, most of whom will not have white skin, uh, and I'm sure Catlin's organisations and many others would be quite interested in bringing some sort of uh, racial discrimination claim um, if we're effectively allowing uh, an amnesty for EU citizens and not for others. Uh, final brief point, does Caroline mentioned the success of the Romanians, but didn't, didn't tell us if, they, if there was an explanation for it in registering their, their nationals. And then very quickly... Najmal Hassan from University of Greenwich <coughs> Business School. The question is to the former minister or anybody on the panel. <coughs> of course, we've talked about uh, the settled status and the good work we've done to enable them to settle down. But at the same time, I mean, we know, and I'm thinking 
what about the people who, in stroke of the settled status scheme, chose or became unsettled and they left the country? What happened to them? And all of them surely didn't leave the next week. They engaged with the processes that the government and the other agencies adopted at various points. So looking ahead now, when these people left, we lost taxpayers, we lost entrepreneurs, we lost the next generation of people. Yes, and they had invested in the country. So I'm thinking aloud, the people who are here, the EU uh, people here, many are thinking of leaving, many will leave given the uncertainty and the problems that we see now. What should we do to keep the people who are here and benefit from them, benefit from them for our future? Okay, Madeline, I was going to come to you first on the surge. Are we, can we expect to see another surge, or is it impossible to tell? Will we get people coming for a weekend in order to get pre-settled status at, <laughs> over Christmas break yeah. in 2020? Um, do you have any views on that? So, yeah, well, my standard answer to anything about the future is it's impossible to tell because then people can't come back later and say that I was wrong. But, um, uh, generally, I mean, I think that the... the this question, there was a lot of discussion about it uh, at the time of the referendum campaign, about whether there would be an inflow of people kind of trying to get in before the door closes. I think, it is, yeah, it's always difficult to predict. Um, I suspect there are a number of moments where we might have seen surges like that, where people thought the door was closing, so in you know, January or in, you know, any of the times when we were discussing No Deal um, last year. And we, we didn't, um, and I think maybe the UK just wasn't as attractive as, as we thought. There were fewer people who um, were, were desperately trying to, to, to get through the door before it closed. Um, so I, based on that, it would seem like probably not, but, but who knows. On the point about emigration, actually, I would say it's also interesting that emigration has not increased as much um, as, as many people predicted. You know, there has been a modest increase in um, EU citizens leaving. But for the most part, actually, people who are living here are quite well settled. Many of them have, have been here um, for you know, years and, or even decades. They have children here in school. They have jobs for a long time. And want, you know, people who have been in the country for a very short period of time, I think, are much more likely to um, make decisions based on things like the political environment and think, well, maybe it's time to go home. But once your life is really rooted in the country, actually, it, it may take a little bit more than, than politics to, uh, to uproot people. Julia, you wanted to come in. Yeah, I just wanted to um, just answer that point about the um, bias on algorithms. So I think that what, what, what uh, you have to remember is um, this was an enormous scheme to set up. There's an awful amount of work that had to be done in a very short period of time. The Home Office was widely consulting and standing up this new technology and trying to imagine that they're you know, they're catering for millions of people to come through it, and therefore they're thinking, what, what do we need to prove residents? And um, so they, you know, reaching out for the typical things that you would think of, and I have been in stakeholder meetings cont contributing to the ideas of what, of what you, documents you'd have. Sure, now, in the cold light of day, when you stand back and you look at that algorithm, and you realize that it's not um, asking for child benefit documents, that does have a, um, an unconscious bias because women who have not been in employment 
are going to find it harder to get the documents that are in the system. That's absolutely right. And obviously, in hindsight, which is a great thing, of course, that should have been put into the system. But I think, going back to the point I made right at the beginning, the whole way the Home Office is tackling this is that for those women, they are really reaching out to those women and really, really staying with them and walking through with them to get the right documents. And Gemma, who's from my office, and I have had lots of cases of women where, unfortunately, for the reasons that you've said, those documents aren't automatically um, found by the Home Office on the system, but we have you know, worked with them and the Home Office have just kept their case right open until we've got all the documents together. And I think this, it's a really important point you raise about bias in algorithms, not just about the settlement scheme, but it's a very, very important point across the board. And I've always tried to bring this point out because I think it's something that we should learn from in, if another system for another reason is set up. Caitlin Nuria, do you want to come in and then Caroline will come to you? Yeah, just to respond on um, David's point, I think it's an it's a important point you raise about the, in a way we can see this um, June next year as a kind of, it's a point at which Europeans who come here after the cutoff point and Europeans who don't apply in time will be subject to the future immigration system, which at, at, at present we don't know very much about and will be subjected and are at risk of things that migrants from outside Europe have been subjected to for decades. And in some ways, the fact that it's now um, Europeans, who are predominantly white population, are now at risk of brings our attention onto something that JCWI have been campaigning for for over 50 years, which is improving the immigration system for all migrants. So yes, um, I agree that we would love to see this as an opportunity to create more safe routes to regularization for all migrants. Um, because unless we kind of tackle the hostile environment as a whole, um, things are worse for everyone. So that would be an, a brilliant thing if that could be an opportunity for that. Um, so yeah, more safe routes to regularisation and for family reunification as well. So yeah, I agree. Great, Nuri. Uh, I just want to comment about the, uh, the increase of uh, probably Spanish people coming here before the uh, deadline. Uh, I have to say, I don't know about that, but I, I think that the, the opposite could happen. I mean, many British people that have properties in Spain could move uh, before the end of the uh, deadline because otherwise those that spend, I don't know, five months uh, per, per, per year in Spain, they might be forced to get a visa so they could really um, move to Spain before 2021. Winter in Madrid, great. Um, Caroline. It was a massive joy in my life that I don't have to troll through the quarterly immigration statistics anymore. Uh, so I don't think I really feel qualified to comment on surges in any direction. Uh, but I do remember, and this is going to make me sound uh, grossly hypocritical in a moment. So I do remember appearing in front of Bill Cash's uh, select committee, where Bill himself asked me, was I expecting a surge of EU migrants? I think we were then talking about uh, departure day being March 19. Um, and I could respond to him then that actually the stats, and Madeline will understand and know these better than I do now, uh, showed that the direction of travel was in the opposite way. I imagine, having not looked at a single set of the stats since I left, um, that it, it's remained broadly stable. But what really struck me, I think, in the last quarterly migration stats that I actually had to trawl through was that you saw um, the EU nationals from France and Germany remaining very, very steady, um, and what was striking was that there had been a drop-off in the number of 
people from Poland coming, but Romania and Bulgaria were still increasing. Um, so you know, there was no evidence of a surge, and to be quite frank, I think anybody who was desperate to get here before Brexit happened would be here by now. Um, that being said, and remembering exactly what I said to Bill Cash on the subject, I don't remember uh, what I said to Dave Anderson, so I thank Julia for her wonderful explanation about algorithms. I think it's a really, and I had to do a, an adjournment debate discussing algorithms with Chi and Wura. Um, and the thing that always struck me from my days at GDS was that you would walk in there and it would be full of 24-year-old white blicks. Uh, and when you're talking about algorithms, they were making them in, them in their own image. And there was one woman there, she brought me a cup of coffee and you just go, oh, God, you lot, please, can we have some diversity? Can we please make sure that we, when constructing these things, think of all... And I th it's a brilliant point about child benefit. And we know, don't we, and it really saddens me in 2020 to be talking about the fact that we know that it's predominantly women that will be at home with caring responsibilities and they're less likely to be in the workforce and you know all of that grieves me but it's a fact so uh, Julia answered that brilliantly um, and uh, I have ah yes okay so I get really tetchy about use of language you do not uh, spend a single day as immigration minister without thinking extremely carefully about every single word you are going to say and not only the words that you will say but the tone in which you say them. So when people start talking to me about EU citizens becoming illegal immigrants on day one uh, after June 21, actually it really offends me because these people, as I said to the lady from the three million, they're our friends, our neighbours, our colleagues. In many instances they are members of our family and if the government turns them into illegal immigrants on day one, then they will have failed. Great. Question down the front here. One just behind and then Hayden just behind. Come to you next. Thank you. Uh, so my name is uh, Joe Fisher. I'm here from the uh, Foreign and Commonwealth Office together with my colleague uh, Freya Park. I'm afraid we're not from the Home Office, um, but we will nevertheless... I'll bet there's a Home Office spy in here somewhere. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I remember having myself. So. Um, we, do, um, we do work closely with the Home Office, I won't, wouldn't be able to, to answer every detailed question, but I thought I, I wanted to, to primarily just briefly comment on the UK nationals living in the EU, but just before that, two very brief points building on Caroline Oak's um, earlier comments on the settlement scheme, just to reiterate really that you know, the UK government is looking for reasons to grant status and not to refuse status, and that the Home Office has you know, reconfirmed that it will take a pragmatic and proportionate approach um, where there are reasonable grounds for missing the deadline, I it was worth just reiterating that point. Um, also, just briefly, there was a question around the IMA, the, the monitoring authority, um, just to clarify. So it's, it's, it's going to be an independent body um, with a board comprising experts in citizens' rights, um, and it will have the powers to receive complaints, to take legal action, etc. It will be accountable to Parliament through the Ministry of Justice um, and will be operational from the end of the transition period. Um, but I, I wanted to briefly touch on the, the UK nationals living in, in, the, uh, in the EU. There are quite a number of sort of similar or mirroring, mirroring challenges, including numbers. We don't have a, an exact figure for the numbers of, of UK nationals living in the EU. We talk about at least one million, but it, particularly including in, in Spain, for example, we don't have um, exact figures. Um, the withdrawal agreement, as, as we know, gives member states the opportunity to choose declaratory or constitutive systems. We still, as, as Joe mentioned, don't have um, a, a full picture as to what member states are going to do. We think it's going to be roughly 50-50. Um, our understanding, 13, as of today, 13 will be constitutive systems, 11 declaratory, and two, as yet, um, unconfirmed. Most of the constitutive systems are not yet open. Um, in a couple of cases, they are, um, and that's, that's great. Um, but in, in other cases, we're waiting for, for further clarity as to exactly the steps that UK nationals will need to take. 
and we are working very closely with member states to ensure that, that those steps are communicated clearly and as soon as possible. There are going to be challenges, um, for example, um, ensuring that within member states, local authorities, for example, understand that over the transition period and indeed beyond for those in scope of the withdrawal agreement, um, their rights are protected. There will be challenges in, in member states where residency is a devolved um, issue to ensure, for example, consistency of, of, of application and operationalization. Um, and similar challenges around hard-to-reach individuals, uh, UK nationals who may be living more or less off the grid, who don't necessarily speak the language of their, of their host um, country. Um, so member states will, as per the withdrawal agreement, be leading on communications to UK nationals, but as the UK government, we're going to be working very closely with them, continuing um, our outreach events. Uh, we've got our living in guides on, on gov.uk. We've also launched the UK National Support Fund um, to provide grants to third-party organisations to try and provide practical assistance to those who may, um, who may need it. So just wanted to raise those points and to emphasise that both uh, the rights of EU citizens in the UK and UK nationals in the EU is an absolute priority uh, for this government going forward. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Just behind you. Patrick Lowline, I'm also from the Three Million. Um, I have a question for Caroline Noakes. You appear to be quite relieved that you no longer have the job of uh, looking after this horrible, horrendous scheme. However, in your new role as chair of the Women's and Equalities Committee, aren't you concerned that it may come back, the settled scheme to haunt you there with um, some of the discrimination issues around jobs and housing. Yes. Yeah, so my name is um, Jakob Krupa. I'm a Polish journalist and also work for the Polish Social and Culture Association, the largest Polish centre in the UK. And also I happen to work on applications as a volunteer and level one immigration advisor now limited to EUSS. A couple of points from our point of view, obviously, as the biggest community in the UK, I think the, the main thing for us is the lack of communications in national languages. And there's a great anecdote I've heard from someone on, at a very big Polish media outlet where they were approached by the Home Office, to, willing to spend budgets on advertising and getting post register. And the, the media responded saying, we're happy to translate that to Polish for you so you can reach more people. And the answer was, no, we don't trust you. Uh, so we're going to run it in English. So there's a Polish radio running adverts in English, which, as you can imagine, was not necessarily very successful. Um, then also, as a, as a journalist, for me, I mean, getting interviews with anyone is a nightmare. Um, I, I wish that was easier, because uh, particularly at times when there's a massive interest, like the um, withdrawal date, obviously there are so many questions that we would like to see answered, and they're not being answered. In terms of numbers, I think Madeleine made a very good point about when we compare the ONS estimates and the number of people who apply to this scheme, I think in six cases they are over 100%. So, for example, the Bulgarians have a 150% application rate at the moment, and, and it keeps going, so, it, so it clearly it's going to be even higher than that, which tells you that there's a, there's a problem with numbers. And Poland is at only 65% there. And being the largest community in the UK, obviously, that means that half a million, probably, maybe more people are still not registered. And that is a reason of concern. And as someone who sat and worked on numbers of applications, I, I know that uh, it, it's, it's quite difficult for a lot of people. And then the debate we had, was a lot of good points made by um, Caitlin about this, particularly about digital. People don't understand that. When we explain to them that they're going to get an email, then a the second email, then a the third email with a decision, emails quite often land in spam. They don't get what it is, what, what, you know, where to find them, how to prove them. They print the emails anyway, even though they are not legally binding. So I think there's a lot of confusion around that. The very last point, uh, and again, I think that's something that Caitlin said earlier, um, funding for organizations helping out uh, for 57. It's nine million pounds. Um, the funding runs out next month. Um, I know a number of these organizations will have to fire staff next week or in the next two weeks if they don't get the money because they just don't have the capacity to keep funding it themselves. 
Uh, so we are in a situation where basically we're excluding expertise and experience of the last year of people who worked on the ground if you don't get the money quick enough. Thank you. Great. I think there's time for one last question and then we will do a quick sweep of the panel for final comments. Hi. Uh, my name is Francisca von Blumenthal. I'm not here in any professional capacity, but as a concerned EU citizen who came here as a young child and is yet to apply for settled status. Uh, so my question, probably the one thing that concerns me and many people like me the most is that we appear to have the rights to stay and to uh, be able to access basic services. They appear to be protected. However, there's very little protection for us contained in primary legislation. Most is contained in secondary legislation. So I do wonder uh, why this is, if the panel may be able to answer that or if the panel has similar concerns. And I'd just like to make the comment that if ministers, both current and former, are sincere in wanting EU nationals to stay, surely this isn't the way to do it. And maybe putting things in primary legislation would be a good move to make people feel welcome in this country again. Uh, and finally, just like to say, and I think it's an important point to make, that campaign groups such as the Three Million have done more to protect our rights. And I'd like to give the example, just because it was used today by various members of the panel, that the scheme is now free. This is thanks to campaign groups like the Three Million and like EU citizens who have campaigned for this. It's not a government initiative. Thank you very much. So, Nuri, do you want to come in on anything before we end? Caitlin, do you? Not in response to the questions, but... Do you want to give final remarks then? Yeah. We're wrapping up. Yeah, no, the only thing I would add is um, we're, we've heard kind of on the panel different things around if we have a declaratory system, will people not apply and will there be incentives? The only thing I would add on that is that um, we're not suggesting it would be a system in which no one would have to do anything. We think that people would, people would need to still register. Um, we exist in a society that has a compliant or hostile immigration system and you need to be able to prove your immigration status to live your daily life, to work, to rent accommodation, to open a bank account. And we think that the government can create fair incentives to encourage people to register and get their physical documentation. But removing someone's status is simply an unacceptable approach and makes life in the UK unlivable. Um, so that is the thing that I would end on. And just saying we're, we're picking between two situations, really, one in which tens of thousands of people fall out of status, are criminalised for working, driving, any of the things I've mentioned, or one in which a likely similar number are temporarily undocumented and can then register for proof of their status at the next available opportunity that they have. So it's, it's about picking between those two, really. Madeline, do you want to...? Um, sure, yeah, so two uh, quick things. One, on, on the physical document, I think the issue, when people talk about discrimination, I think that the issue that sometimes gets missed, and like, regardless of what you think about databases and so forth, the issue, the thing that is likely to create discrimination is the fact that British citizens aren't in the database. And so you have to have a different way of checking. Basically, British citizens will only be able to use a physical document. So you're always going to have with employers and landlords and so forth a dual system where some people get to use a physical document and some people don't. And I think that's where the concerns about discrimination come in. Um, and then the other thing I think just kind of looking forward but in terms of what happens over the next few years um, the question about consistency of implementation, I think, is going to be really important. So there's quite a lot of research on um, kind of administrative processes that suggest that when you have big policy changes and transitions, 
people get confused, um, both in the private sector, employers, landlords, and so forth, but actually also in government agencies themselves when you get down to the kind of what academics like to call the street-level bureaucrats um, who, um, <laughs> who actually have to implement these policies. We're going to have a proliferation of people on all sorts of different statuses. Um, and I think there will be, naturally, with any change of this nature, there will be a challenge to make sure that people actually understand what they're supposed to be doing, who has which rights and entitlements, and making sure that they actually um, um, are treated in the way that they're supposed to under the law. Julia. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's some really excellent points that have been made. I think that it's really important to focus on that June day to make sure that provisions, you know, make sure that the government do put in provisions to make people feel very safe after, after that date. Um, and, you know, and I, and I do accept the points that have been made about, you know, digital system, etc. But I would draw everyone back to the beginning as well to not forget that there has been lots of very good positives about this whole scheme. And from what the arguments were again at the beginning I think overall in terms of the challenges it's faced the Home Office has done a really good job. Brilliant thank you very much and then Caroline to end. So um, just a, a, to respond to some of the questions actually I think there's a really interesting cultural difference between the UK and other countries about the the difference between primary and secondary legislation certainly the three million did quite a fabulous job of ramming it home to me how important they felt primary legislation was as an immigration minister who knew that the vast bulk of our immigration law is done through the immigration rules to me that's a little bit of a we're now talking about semantics here is it legislation or not however I was the um, the individual who was ramped up many times to do the citizens rights elements of uh, the withdrawal bill that was taken away from me. So if you want to have a go, because I didn't actually manage to do it, apologies, we didn't have a Commons majority to get it through, so it never happened. Um, I think there are some really interesting questions. So I vividly remember doing um, many media rounds. Uh, I won't pretend I did them in a variety of languages, but I'm sure the journos translated them for me. But I used to speak to uh, journalists from EU member states the whole time. I don't know what's happened since. I think an absolutely fantastic question uh, along the lines of do I seem relieved to no longer be in the job? Actually, I loved being immigration minister. Uh, for me, it was a fantastic opportunity, uh, as I said earlier, to try and bring a human element to the Home Office. I gather I'm quite unusual uh, compared to some of the ministers that they have had been used to. Um, and, you know, I always felt it was absolutely incumbent upon me to do this with a human face, to try and listen to groups, to spend an enormous amount of time meeting the different organisations impacted by uh, immigration policy and decisions. So I miss it. I really miss it. Uh, and I think I once on the radio gave a serious pitch to Boris Johnson to keep me in the job. Unfortunately, he disagreed with my suitability. Um, and do I think this is going to come back to haunt me as chair of the Women and Equality Select Committee? So I think that's a really interesting question. However, uh, I have to temper that with I am only the chair-elect until the committee is properly constituted. I cannot sit here and make any grand pronouncements on what we will be holding inquiries into because I don't yet formally have a committee, uh, which I um, am a little frustrated about. But I think um, certainly this gives me a really interesting new role to get my teeth into and certainly some of the experiences I had at the Home Office uh, and working on a wide range of issues whether it be um, the citizenship status of children 
uh, from across the globe who've come here. I mean, you know, I met some fantastic organisations who made some really compelling points. I mean, whether it's about family reunification um, and at what point we start regarding somebody as an independent adult. I always use this example. I apologise to her. You know, my daughter is 21 years old. Do I regard her as independent? No. A million miles from that. So, you know, I think there are some interesting questions that undoubtedly I will be taking forward, but I can't commit the committee to anything. Brilliant. Well, all that's left is to say thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much to our excellent panel. Thank you very much to Fragerman for kindly uh, sponsoring this event, and we hope to see you soon. We have an event next week on implementing the Irish Protocol, which, of course, is the other testy bit of the withdrawal agreement that still needs to be put into place by the end of the year. So put your hands together for our panel and hope to see you next week. Thank you.